0: Good morning, everybody. It's always a privilege to be back in your home church, because we, as you know, many of you know, we're not here every Sunday. We travel quite a bit, which is also a distinct privilege. It really is. And uh, I was recently in Canada, and I shared with you about a year ago, I was in Vancouver in a church there over a weekend, and God did some incredible things, incredible things. It really was For me, it was one of the highlights of just my years of walking with the Lord in terms of what he did. But there was one particular young lady, she was about 17, 18 years old, who'd been beset by illness. I did share this with you for three or four years to such a degree that she had been locked into a house. People had a whisper when they came into the house. I don't know what the disease is called. Maybe John can help us, but there is a name for it she had seen five or six specialists and nothing had moved and that's her life. She couldn't go out because she couldn't contain noise because of the pain that went through her body. And she came to the weekend that I happened to be there and God encountered her, really encountered her and set her incredibly free. And the mother said that the day you get free I'll take you to Hawaii. And that Monday she went to Hawaii, as many as you know. But I went back to Vancouver this year in May and I was on a ferry from the mainland to the island, and I bumped into the mother, and we started to chat, and I said, how's your daughter? And as I said that, she came running around the corner with two of her friends, being a typical 18-year-old, and it was such a joy to see the way they were laughing and just being who she was created to be. And when she saw me, only because I was just a vessel, the vehicle that God used, she ran up to me, and this ferry is full of people, and just threw arms around me. And I just started to weep, just because of what God has done. And I was reminded of that when we were singing God of Miracles. uh, This young girl's life was trying to be defined by what the devil was doing to her, but God set her free. Amen. And she was being a young girl. It was wonderful to see. They were going to go buy a pack of cards and go play cards and whatever, and off she ran again. And then this week we got a phone call. A lady from another church that we had visited a couple of times and we had ministered on and off, but she was still working through stuff and she phoned Michelle, she was a predetermined phone call and she spent a couple of hours on the phone to Michelle and then I was in my office and Michelle came to me and said, listen, you need to pray for this lady, I think she needs some deliverance. So I just took the phone and started to pray for her and I'm only saying that because God set her free over the phone. She started to cry and splutter and I could hear what was happening and then just incredible tears. It's just he is the God of miracles, even through technology. Isn't it amazing, eh? That's amazing. Well, I think it's amazing. Hallelujah. Amen. (laughs) All right. Turn with your Bibles, please, to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. What I'm going to do today is something I don't normally do. Other people are better at it than me, so we'll see how we do. Amen. But I just feel we need to do this. Just to remind you, the book of Colossians was uh, written by Paul, as many of you are aware, but he did not plant this church. A man called Epaphras planted this church. He heard Paul preaching in Ephesus. He went there, spent some time there. He got radically saved. He came back to Colossia, which was, I think, about 25 miles difference between Ephesus and Colossia, and he started a church in a man's house called Philemon, who is in the Bible, the book Philemon. And they started a church there, and things started to develop and grow. By this time, Paul is arrested. He's put in prison. And so this man goes to visit Paul in prison and gives him a report of how things are going. So Paul decides to write to this church and write to the church of Ephesus at the same time and write to Philemon, which is a book in the Bible. And he was a businessman, very wealthy businessman, and write to him to deal with some stuff. And so, Paul has, the Bible never tells us that he visited this church. So, he has one chance to write to this church. And the thing that he focuses on is Jesus Christ. That's his focus. That's what's such a powerful book, Colossians, because that's his focus of trying to get this church to focus, because he's dealing with some heresy that's starting to come in and he's dealing with things and he wants the people to refocus on Jesus. And so he talks about the supremacy of Christ and how what, even what Clayton said that Christ is above all and what that means for this church, etc. Then he also writes to Ephesians and he says, when you've read that letter, swap them over. And then he writes to Philemon because there was a young man that was employed by Philemon that stole money from Philemon and ran, and he got saved under Paul's ministry. And Paul wants to send this man back to Philemon and say, writes to Philemon to say, receive this man back. And anything he owes you, I will pay for it. And it's incredible how Paul can write to these churches and then deal with one person as well to restore relationships. incredible. Anyway, so Colossians, just to give a brief background to remind us, Colossians 1.24, it says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. I'm reading from the NIV, which is not a good translation, and we put the New King James up there. Now rejoicing what was suffered for you, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages in generations that is now disclosed to the saints to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory or the expectation of glory. credible truth that unfolds in us. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect. It should be mature. That word perfect is mature. Mature in Christ. To this end, I labor struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I'm struggling. And that word struggling, it means more that I carry this weight and the responsibility that I can deal with the ignorance that, is, that you possibly have lived under and that the darkness that you've lived under. That's the struggle that he's going through. I'm struggling with that, so you receive this truth, this revelation it's like a mother that has a concern for a child, you know, that never leaves a mom. Even when your kids are married, they tend to come back, and I say, no, go, 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 anyway, you know. <laughs> and it never leaves a mom. You go on vacation, and you think about your kids. And that's what Paul is saying. It's, it's in me. It's part of what I carry. Amen. I know leading a church, you, that's with you 24-7. It never leaves you. Way to go on a vacation, and you think, Yay! But then a day later, it comes back. So, he's saying, I'm struggling for you and for all those at Laodicea, and for those who have not met me personally. My purpose, and this is the whole reason, is that you may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that you may know. That that knows experientially. Know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So everything we need is in Christ. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit, and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith is in Christ. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as the Lord, continue to live Him, rooted in Him, built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Two more verses. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Just think about that. Paul is saying everything of who God the Father is, everything about him, all his majesty and glory, the awesomeness of God is lived in Christ in bodily form when he walked on this earth. That's amazing. The fullness of the deity was embodied in Christ when he lived, when he walked in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ. So just as everything of God was in Christ, we have everything of Christ in us. Amen. So you can see Paul is trying to unfold this revelation of who Christ is. And even in Ephesians the prayer that Paul prays, I pray that the God the Father would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you will know the riches of his glory, the call that is upon your life, and the incomparable great power that is within you, the power that right That's the heart of Paul. That's what he's wanting to unfold. And so he's focusing on Jesus. Everything the Holy Spirit does in you and me, everything, is for this one purpose, to conform us to Christ, And empower us so we can make Christ known. That's it. Everything the Holy Spirit does is to set us free, to change our thinking, to change our heart, to change our attitudes, or to empower us so we can represent who Jesus is. In our personality, very naturally. Amen. And so I want to talk on the four faces of Christ represented in the Bible so we can get a full view and understanding and a picture of what the Bible's wanting to show us of who Christ is. Amen. So let's go to Revelation. So we have a picture in the throne room. And so in Revelation chapter 4, we have this amazing, unique view of Jesus in Revelation 4. And for the sake of time, we're just going to read two verses. Verses 6, 7, and 8. There was also a throne that would look like the sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in the front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. It was like, it looked like, it represented something. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, and was covered with eyes all under his wings, day and night. They never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. So John has this picture up into the throne room. Because the Bible says in verse 1, a door opening into the heavens. And the Lord says, come up here and I'll show you some things. And so there's these living creatures like a lion, and the second is like an ox, and the third is like the face of a man, and the fourth is like an eagle in flight. Now if you go to Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel 1 verse 10, it says, Ezekiel has this picture. Ezekiel is taken and has this picture, and it says their faces were like this. Each of the four, and now there were four living creatures, had the face of a man, and on the right side had the face of a lion, on the left side of an ox, and also a face of an eagle. So we see this picture that John has in Revelation, but we also see the similar picture that Ezekiel had many thousands of years before. So these four living creatures in the throne room were also seen through Ezekiel, and this time the four living creatures each had four faces the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. What we start to encounter in Scripture is that the four faces in the throne room which represent the four faces of Jesus are also beginning to be imprinted right throughout Scripture. And as we look into Scripture, we see the four faces of Christ slowly being represented through different ways. And in the Old Testament, it's a shadow and a foreshadow shadow of what's coming. We see in Israel's encampment around the tabernacle in the desert, each of the tribes had banners representing the family heritage as they came into formation around the tabernacle, Numbers 2-2. Two, two. Reliable Jewish tradition records the falling of each of the banners for the falling tribes encampment. Judah was the lion. And from the ox, Reuben, man, and Dan, the eagle. We also know that the Ark of the Covenant was in the center as the tribes encamped around, representing the presence of God. And just as Jesus is the center of the heavenly throne room, so when you look down from above on the encampment, it represents a cross, because there were more people in the Judah, Essachar, and Zebulun. And so that's what it looked like from above, just representing a cross. And the four faces of Jesus shown. God is trying to speak to us and say, let me give you the fullness and the breadth and the depth and the understanding. Also, in the Old Testament, there are also four faces of Jesus beginning to be proclaimed through different prophecies. We find each one of the fourfold portraits of Jesus highlighted in the Old Testament simply by the word, behold. So in Zechariah 9.9, it says, behold your king, which is a prophecy of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. And you can go read the context, we don't have time. In Isaiah 41.2, it says, Behold my servant, which is the ox. It's the servant. Zechariah 6.12, Behold the man, representing his humanity. And Isaiah 49, Behold your God. So again, the four faces, prophetically beginning to proclaim the coming of the Messiah and something of what it's going to look like. We see the four faces of Jesus specifically highlighted with the proclamation, Behold throughout the Old Testament. We understand that the purpose of the old is always to lay a foundation for the new. Always. It always is. And so we begin to build from the old into the new. So, now we're going to look into the four Gospels. We see that the four faces of Jesus in each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It seems we receive our best understanding of the Gospels as we understand that each Gospel writer is drawing a unique portrait of, of Jesus as the Holy Spirit leads them to write this. Jesus is so overwhelming that we need multiple portraits to start to get the larger picture and the depth and the breadth of who Jesus is. And so the Gospels are written with that in mind. So as by the Holy Spirit, Matthew reveals Jesus as a lion. We're going to talk about it. Mark reveals Jesus as an ox, which is a servant. Luke reveals Jesus as a man, his humanity. It's interesting a doctor wrote that. And John reveals Jesus as an eagle, his divinity. So at the same time, we see that each of the four Gospels account, we see all four portraits, as in Revelation and Ezekiel and in encampment, these four faces of Christ. As we look in the genealogies, the four ways the faces of Christ are expressed through genealogies found in the Gospels. Matthew 1, you can see, according Of the genealogy, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abram. So if you have a look at the genealogy in Matthew, Matthew wants to portray Jesus as a king, a lion. And more specifically, the king of Israel. And there's nothing more important for a king than a genealogy. You can only be a king if you come from the royal bloodline. So that's why Matthew is portraying it. So the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew traces back to King David, and it starts with Abram, who's the father of the nation of Israel. That's why it starts like that. This Jesus is indeed a king in the line of Abram and Israel's true king. In Mark, does anybody know what genealogy recorded in Mark? None. There's no genealogy. Why? Because as a servant, you don't need a genealogy. All you need is credentials. So there's no genealogy in the Mark because it represents the servantness, the servant heart of Christ, as prophesied in Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 53. So there's no genealogy Mark because no one is concerned where a servant comes from. It only matters what a servant does. This Mark is reflecting Jesus as an ox. In Luke... In Luke chapter 3, you can read about the genealogy. As we come to Luke, we're going to see the portrait of Jesus as man, is his humanity. So we need to see that Jesus is part of the human race. So if you go to the Gospel of Luke, and it says, verse 23, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began to his ministry, and he was the son, so it was the thought of Joseph. And then it traces back the genealogy, and it goes all the way back before chapter 4, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. So it traces it back to the beginning of mankind because of his humanity. The first human being represents the entire human race. John wants to show that Jesus is divine. So the genealogy of Jesus has two people in it. God the Father and God the Son. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Done. The divinity of Jesus Christ. The only people needed in this genealogy are those who carry divinity. So we see the four faces represented just even in the genealogy of Jesus through the different Gospels. As we continue to dig and dig, I believe we are seeing enough evidence that the four faces of Christ are close to his heart. And so I believe we need to ask, what does this mean for me? What does it mean for you? Why is it so important? Why is God going to so many lengths in writing the Word? And trying to reveal these four faces. I believe it's important because we want to know Christ in the fullness of who he is. So we can make sure that we have considered every aspect of Christ. And as the revelation of that takes root in my heart and your heart, it has impact upon me. Because revelation changes me, revelation changes you. Information doesn't change us, revelation does. Amen. I believe as we encounter Jesus today, the Lord wants us to understand in greater fullness so we can follow him and worship him in greater fullness. As Paul said in Colossians, the fullness of who Christ is. So, Matthew, let's go back to Matthew. King represented as a lion. We see Jesus as a lion in Matthew, as a king. In Matthew, Jesus is shown to speak with authority, as in the Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew's, Chapters 5 to 7. Repeatedly, Jesus states, You have heard it said of Moses, but I say to you, Jesus speaks with authority, even more authority than Moses, and no one in Jewish history ever spoke with greater authority than Moses in Jewish history's eyes. But Jesus comes to say, no. But you've heard Moses say, but I say to you. So he's bringing it with authority. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had the authority to drive out demons, heal the sick, make the blind see, pass judgment on the religious establishment. The phrase kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is used 32 times out of the 34 times in the whole of the Bible in this one Gospel to represent the authority of the king and the kingdom. In Matthew, the wise men Ask where they can go to see the king of the Jews. When Jesus was crucified, Pilate, to fix the charge, king of the Jews, represented in Matthew. The theme of Jesus as king is imprinted in multiple ways throughout Matthew. So, do we understand, do you understand, do I understand Jesus as king and live accordingly? living in the authority we have in us as Jesus as king as well as submitting our lives to his kingship because that's what it's about we serve a king but we have the authority of a king within us amen to do what he did Mark, let's look at Mark Mark servant is represented by the ox the ox is the greatest working animal and a great servant. In Mark, we see Jesus as the suffering servant, as prophesied in Isaiah 53. There is no genealogy. There are credentials. Both John the Baptist declared who Jesus is, and so did the Father. The word immediately is used 40 times in Mark's gospel because it says a servant goes immediately about his... The business of the one that sent him to do it. Immediately, immediately this, immediately do this, so he will do what he's called to do. In this case, Jesus' work is to declare the gospel and heal the sick. There are four parables in the gospel of Mark and all of them are related to servanthood. Amazing. Four parables and say Mark 10:45. Jesus said, even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How does this affect you and me? Do we see Jesus as a servant and identify our lives as serving others and serving his purposes? Are we quick to lay our lives down for his purposes and for his church? That's what we're called to do. Lay our lives down there. We are his bondservant. So just like Jesus immediately did this, immediately did that, I pray we would have the attitude when the Lord speaks, Lord, we will immediately do it. So we serve him as king. We have authority as a king. But yet we have a servant-hearted mentality, a servant-hearted attitude to serve, to serve his purposes and to serve mankind, which is his purposes, to lay our lives down as a servant would lay his life down. In the Gospel of Luke, it's interesting that the Spirit uses a doctor, a physician to represent the humanity of Jesus. We see the strength and the dignity of Jesus as a man. We also see Jesus living step by step as a man in dependency upon his Father and the Holy Spirit. And so Luke records more than any other gospel the prayer life of Jesus Christ. But often Jesus withdrew to lonely places to pray. Jesus teaches many parables on prayer in Luke, and Jesus is recorded praying more times in Luke than all the other gospels combined. Further, from the aspect of Jesus' humanity, we have the fullest account, the fullest account, the most detailed account of the agony that Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane because of his manliness. And he sweated drops of blood. Jesus remained in the presence of his Father because that's how he knew he could only operate on earth. If we fully identify with his humanity, you and I, what does that mean for you and I? Do we understand that we need to live completely in dependency upon the voice of our Father? of the voice of Jesus through intimacy and prayer. It's the foundation and cornerstone of the whole Christian walk. As Jesus did, we do not want to do anything outside the will of the Father. Amen. John, last one, the divinity. The eagle is far above. is represented to reveal the divinity of Jesus. In John, there's no record of Jesus' agony in the garden. Of his divinity. Say, it's not represented as a man. As John is painting a portrait from the aspect of Jesus as the Son of God, not his humanity. The book of John centers around seven I AM statements, seven miracles, seven teachings, which all speak of the divinity of Jesus, the prophetic number 777. The I AM statements declare that Jesus is God, and during his arrest, Jesus declared his divinity. He said, when G- Jesus said, I am, I am, I am. Finally, John records the reason for the writing in John 20:31. But this book I've written, or these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What does this mean for you and I? Do we really understand that Jesus is the Lord of lords, the true one God, that everything else in our lives comes into place for this life and eternity when we have that of focus, that He is the King, he's the Lord of lords, the King of kings. As we conclude, we have been considering the four faces of Jesus in the throne room, And we're seeing the four faces of Jesus are embedded in the core fiber of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. This is so embedded in the Scripture because Jesus wants us to know who he truly is. And that's one of the cries of my heart. We have such a low view of who Jesus is, and the world has such a low view of who Jesus is. Even his name is used as a swear word, unfortunately. My heart's desire has always been that people would see truly who Jesus is. And his magnificence, his glory, his resurrection Jesus, the one of all power, all authority, but the one who continues to even serve now. Because he intercedes for us day and night, the Bible says. But the one who is the king of all, the Lord of all. And that our lives are given to that and shaped by that and shaped by that revelation above all revelations and that his voice is the loudest in our lives and that we would serve him and serve his purposes however he calls us to do that and for each one of us it's different. Jesus is multifaceted. can only be understood through numerous views. So the more we grasp Jesus as king, servant, in his humanity and his divinity, the more we know who Jesus is. And the more we know who Jesus is, the more we allow him to flow through us and the more we can represent him around us. I trust there's a continued revelation of who Christ is in our hearts. And as Clayton said, he wasn't going to preach on, he's the focus. The miracles are great, I agree, even that young girl I told you about, but he has to be the central focus. He has to be our all. He has to be the one that we continue to look to. Jesus is the King. He is the Lord. That's why we sit here. Some of us are friends today, and I've had the privilege of connecting with people in this country. Why? Because Jesus brought us together, and we have a common purpose, Jesus Christ. Amen. In the natural, some of you wouldn't be, my friends. Sorry, but you wouldn't. (laughs) Because we wouldn't have the same interests. But because we have a common or a a single goal, Jesus, and his purposes, and what he's called us to, we connect, we bond, we come together as brothers and sisters to allow him to do what only he can do in us, through us, in this church, and through this church. He has a purpose for this church, and he will watch over that purpose to fulfill it. But he has to be the focus, not even the purpose. He will work his purpose out. Amen.